welcome back to the final episode of the five-part series of Research Recap. In today's episode, we'll be looking at sensory perception, more specifically, the specialized sensory perception that has been evolved and adapted to exist in species that rely on more special modes of sensory awareness and digestion. So, going on with that, electroreception. Super cool idea. The only thing that I knew about electricity in fish were electric eels and just shocking the water and surroundings. Not a very in-depth understanding. But what we've learned is that with electroreception, it's a sensory system that responds to all electric fields. And so electric receptors within these species that exhibit them have modified neuromast organs, or mechanoreceptors, that are either ampullary or tuberous. It's present in many fish species, both electric fish that produce electric signals or non-electric fish. Electroreceptors that have evolved early on in these fish present different ways of navigation or understanding of the environment. And so the ampullary electroreceptors are used for uh, receptor and support that lie at the bottom of narrow channels and they detect lower frequency electric pulses which are used by non-electric fish. Tuberous electroreceptors are able to detect higher frequency electric pulses and are used by electric fish to detect a fish's own electric discharge or uh, present electric discharge into the waters. And it's more superficial. So electric fish in general are species that produce electric currents via electric organ discharge. The electric organ is a specialized block of muscle that are called electroplaques, and they produce either higher voltage electric shocks to stun prey or predators, or weak electric fields which are used to navigate Uh, murky waters where visibility is low, or detect conspecifics, which could be uh, useful in reproduction or even just kin recognition, and these are detected by those tuberous electroreceptors. So electroreception in non-electric fish will be the focus of today's uh, research recap. And this type of reception is passively detecting electric fields that are produced by muscle contractions in other animals. These electroreceptors, which are ampullary, are on head and concentrated around the mouth. And examples of weakly electric fish can be sharks, sturgeons, catfish, and some tusks. And these are predominantly in low light environments. So pretty murky waters where, again, that visibility is low. And so these animals have adapted to have a specialized form of reception so that they can navigate and successfully reproduce and go about their lives in a low visibility environment. So with that, the research of today's focus is titled Spatial Learning Through Active Electroreception, and it's uh, published from 2019. The authors here wanted to focus on how aquatic environments present a challenge 
in navigation, especially because these fish are navigating in three dimensions, or fish in general are navigating in three dimensions, compared to humans who are typically navigating in two, uh, with the exception of architectural design and engineering that has allowed us to navigate up and down stairs and travel that way. But instead of just going forward and backwards or side to side, fish also have to accommodate to depth in the water. And when visibility is low, it's really important to have this extra sense of awareness for what's going on in the environment. And so having these electroreceptors and being able to produce some sort of frequency, they're able to sense what is in their surroundings. The authors note that navigation is a challenge to mobile animals because it's essential for finding mates, food, and shelter. All key factors of the evolutionary trends that we had discussed in episode one. These sensory perceptions and just overall perception of the environment can rely on self-generated or external information, idiothetic or allothetic respectively. The near-range sensory systems provide information for navigation is much less understood. And so the aim of this article is to look at how near-range sensory systems not only provide information for navigation, but how these specific stimuli have induced a learning response in these weakly electric fish. And so previous literature has found that animals learning to navigate are thought to first gain and store sensory information about their environment that they then use as a reference to orient and navigate. This point stood out to me because in my own personal experience, whenever I'm driving in a new state or a new city, instead of relying on street names and turn by turns and actual distances from point A to point B, I tend to make landmarks and recognize a specific building or a particular turn, maybe a stoplight, but these little features stand out to me most and I eventually learn to navigate the area without having to rely on GPS or knowing the road signs. So in this application, the researchers are looking at self-centered and world-centered referencing modes of navigation, which are egocentric and allocentric, respectively. They state that animals may keep track of their position by using either internal sensory information or external sensory stimuli. And so the allocentric navigation depends on a viewpoint independent representation of relations between external elements in the environment. They studied the short-range sensing and spatial navigation of the weekly African elephant-nosed fish during nightly foraging excursions. So just adding on to that layer of low visibility, not only are the waters murky, but it's also nighttime in this experiment. And what they did was collect 15 of these fish, ranging in standard length, and they um, acquired these from a commercial fish dealer. They housed them in uh, normal protocol and the experiments were conducted in darkness and recorded using infrared lighting so not to disrupt the lighting um, used for navigation. 
they had established training procedures. So fish were trained in two groups. Training started with two habituation sessions, allowing the fish to explore the area for an hour. And this arena is separate from their housing. They also had feeders within the, the training arena. And all except one of the feeders were in front of the home compartment that contained food. And so during these training sessions, they're just introducing food compartments to the fish so that later on they will have a motive or they'll know what they need to look for. They also induced transfer tests, which was a one session, 10 trial, and it aimed to determine whether fish followed an allo or idiothetic strategy to complete the task of finding the food. So the intra-arena cues were the feeders and metal objects, as well as any chemical cue emanating from the larva. The larva is coming from a mosquito, and this is supposed to serve as a prize for navigating essentially a, a maze of feeders that uh, forces the weakly electric fish to use some sort of spatial navigation to locate where the prey might be in a nocturnal setting. Under the assumption that the fish used uh, metal objects as an allothetic sensory cue, the authors expected them to perform worse in stable landmark conditions. And so they established several different conditions to compare and contrast the two forms of external and internal navigation cues. And having uh, metal objects that kind of interfere with these electric fields were there as landmark cues. And then the stable ones were plastic ones, which don't interfere as much. So for controls, they were sure to stir the water before each trial to try to prevent any sort of chemical interference from uh, potentially the mosquito larvae. For learning and parameters, they measured number of errors reaching feeding um, containers and the time needed to reach the target and the distance covered in this time for each fish in the trial. So like most animal models, it's difficult to measure cognitive ability. So we have to go through behavioral tasks and errors to kind of make assumptions about these cognitive tasks. For the direction of the feeders visited, they analyzed the impact of stable and non-stable landmarks, so those plastic versus metal landmarks, and how those impacted the behavior. For those EOD samplings, they quantified electric sampling behavior with respect to the landmark in different trials of the learning session, as well as the very first transfer trial. These changes in the EOD rate are quote-unquote novelty responses, or e-scans, and they've been implicated in spatial learning and local electrosensory cues. Additionally, second extramotor patterns, such as backward swimming along salient points in the electrosensory environment, have been shown to connect to electrosensory learning. So from this experiment, they found that all 15 fish reached the learning criterion within three to six training sessions, which is relatively quick and a low amount of variability between all the different types of training. 
and on average they found that fish made fewer errors with learning, needed less time to solve the task, and took shorter trajectories. For orientation strategy, they found that fish did not swim to the feeder next to the metal object, but rather chose the feeder to which a fixed turn or path integration strategy should have guided them, which kind of makes sense if we relate that back to my uh, turn-by-turn driving excursion. They also found that the fish landing vectors were significantly oriented to this idiothetic target. And all in all, the results showed that these fish showed an idiothetic strategy after having acquired the task. And since all 15 fish were able to recognize the task after that first training session, I would say that they found pretty strong evidence for this. So looking at the role of the landmark to see how this navigation is being accomplished, they said that the second set of transfer tests were the most salient electric cues. The metal object either remained stable while the rewarded feeder was moved, or both were jointly moved. This addressed the issue of the landmark configuration. And so assuming that the metal object served as a cue to reach the target, we, they expected that fish in the stable landmark condition should have more difficulties in learning to navigate to the new target. And so initially predicting that idiothetic and allothetic information both agreed with a previously experienced layout. So overall, they found that spatial learning and memory had demonstrated a variety of teleostin cart- cartilaginous fish, but the studies have focused on the role of vision, whereas this article was looking at orientation strategies in a spatial task using electroreception or this newly specialized adaptive feature of navigation. And so after successful acquisition of the task, the 15 fish were subjected to the rotation transfer test and performed in accordance with an idiothetic strategy. The authors found that fish were quickly able to relearn and localize their goal in all transfer test conditions, which is pretty impressive for being a fish. (laughs) In the stable landmark condition, fish persistently revisited the former location and took longer to relearn the position of the new target, while non-stable landmark condition fish were faster to relearn. Fish learned to associate the object with the location of the ward feeder, and disruption of this association posed a greater challenge to the fish. So, let's say you're driving down, you recognize all of these landmarks on the way to get to your friend's house, but a building gets knocked down, or a tree gets knocked down, and you aren't knowledgeable of that. And so you're driving back, and this landmark that you used to recognize is no longer there. So now you have the challenge of trying to figure out where that turn is without it being related to that landmark. And so you would expect that these fish would have a harder time without that landmark present. They found that overall, the egocentric orientation incorporated active Um, acquisition of sensory information in a way that's comparable to the contribution of whisking, um, which is prevalent in rat navigation. It also actively attends that landmark. Landmarking um, was there initially, but reduced the sensory probing of landmarks 
with increased familiarity with the task. So as they became more familiar, they relied less on this landmark. In the end, the fish were independent of the sensory input as they formed spatial representation of or established an internalized motor strategy. And so instead of trying to outweigh internal versus external, there really is a dynamic between the two. So developing this external stimuli and recognizing the landmarks and and navigating the area, relying on the surroundings, and then eventually internalizing it, no longer needing the external stimuli and being able to internally recognize these situations all through electroreception. So, with future steps of this article, they state that uh, chemical gradients were not used to localize the target, and it remains to be analyzed which information fish used for their mainly idiothetic behavior. So, for being a relatively recent article and introducing really cool ideas about the specialized sensory perception, I think it'd be fascinating to see how fish can apply their own behaviors and own modes of navigation to learning tasks. So they kind of measure that in this example, but again, it's hard to recognize and, and precisely quantify cognition in animals. And so it would be interesting to see further more behavioral tests in addition to measuring these electric fields within the fish. And also going further on this three-dimensional mode of navigation. So with that, I would like to thank you for listening to this five-part series. And this is the end of episode five of Research Recap.